0: rich people always flying off somewhere everyone welcome to the vegan vanguard it's mexi and today we have a super special guest on the show uh someone i've come to admire very much after discovering the eyes left podcast which i've posted about a few times so we have the infamous spencer rapone um spencer was a veteran deployed in afghanistan who then became radicalized by that experience and is now an anti-war Anti imperialist, anti capitalist activist. So, Spencer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: And, Spencer actually got to go see Dr. Richard Wolf's economic update last night. So, I did. <laughs> I got to
1: see the Wolf Man live and in person.
0: How was that? It's
1: great. Uh, I mean, for me, uh, I think he's one of the most um, important left intellectuals out there because, I mean, not only does he have a wealth of knowledge, but his presentation and like his delivery is just one of the mm-hmm. most captivating things out there, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I love how sassy he is. <laughs> oh, it's, it's
1: so good. It's, it just, it's <laughs> yeah. like so off the cuff, too. It's, I'm always yeah. impressed whenever I see him speak. So yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Would you like to start by introducing yourself and your podcast that you host with um, Mike Preisner, and talk sure. about what you're, what you're trying to do with the show?
1: Yeah, so uh, Mike approached me, I don't know, about two weeks or so after I resigned, um, which was uh June 19th of 2018, this year of course, and um, he said that he had had this idea in his head for a while of doing a uh, explicitly socialist uh, military podcast, um, and there's other shows and other offshoots that kind of are in the realm of military, but he wanted one that was in particular uh, anti-imperialist. Um, and analyze military affairs from that perspective. So uh, he emailed me, and you know, kind of gave me the pitch and uh, you know, an outline of what it would look like. And I was really drawn to it because, for me, when I was in the military, I always was like looking for an outlet or some platform or some sympathetic uh, voices that would enable me to voice my discontents. And while I had a lot of friends and comrades who shared my uh, ideas, you know, in some sense, I didn't really have anyone I could reach out to. Uh, I had a couple writers I might have talked to here and there, but nothing that was an explicit platform. And so essentially Mike said, you know, we want to build this up, uh, create this uh, program that would give voices to many of the leftist uh, veterans, but also active duty personnel. For me, that's another key piece of it too is, you know, given uh, active-duty personnel who are trying to find a way out, uh, a way to speak uh, to that discontent. So that's essentially the gist of it. We just want to be a a conduit for uh, anti-imperialist, anti-war socialist veterans and active-duty personnel.
0: Amazing. I love that so much just because I think a lot of leftists, you know, we think about these institutions like the military. We just think about it as this totally opaque and like this singular organism right we don't realize that it's made up of a bunch of different people and that those people could actually be radicalized by their experiences within the army as well so we kind of just write it off as like no the army we can't go there there's no point um that's just a tool of the state without realizing that there are people in there that actually could could wake up to what's going on based on those experiences
1: yeah and um i mean that's by design too i mean there's nothing uh you know the high-ranking officers and you know the ruling class in general loves and the fact that people have no idea how the military functions it's it's just so many like obstructions to kind of understanding it um and it's very you know byzantine i guess in its design because it's like what even happens here and until you've like experienced directly it's very difficult uh, to kind of understand. And that's, you know, since the, the army and the military at large became all volunteer uh, in the 70s, that's kind of been the case. And I think some on the left kind of almost, uh, they almost seeded that field of struggle, which is an important one and an explicitly crucial one, if you ask me, in the history of any successful socialist revolution.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have pretty much seeded it, (laughs) I would say. So I guess uh, I wanted to ask you how you first got into the military in the first place and kind of what were you thinking when you first joined and what were your thoughts about Afghanistan when you were first being deployed there?
1: Sure. Uh, So I'm from uh, Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Pittsburgh. It's kind of your typical Rust Belt town. Uh, My family uh, we we're a working class family, but you know, we didn't have it too easy, but not too hard compared to others. Just kind of your typical run of the mill Rust Belt family. So I did well in high school, but uh, being one of six children, uh, the the financial uh, aspect of college was always something hanging over my head. So I considered, you know, maybe you know West Point sounded like a good idea because it's fully funded. Um, and so I actually applied to West Point when I was in high school, but didn't get accepted. Uh, mm-hmm. And I could have went to, uh, I guess, a number of state schools, but I also, as a young, uh, you know, uh, 18-year-old male who had this sense of adventure, too, the military is quite enticing Mm -hmm. and seductive, even. And so, combined with, you know, the financial aspects and, you know, college being a very expensive prospect uh, and me wanting this, you know, this insane adventure experience, which, you know, was kind of... uh, As a young kid, you know, you watch these movies, these TV shows, and it's just built into you that this is what you should do if you want to prove yourself. Um, So, you know, those two elements together were kind of, I guess, um, a deadly poison. So I enlisted um, in the infantry, and I did pretty well in basic training. I went to airborne school following that, uh, landed a spot in what's called RASP, the Ranger Assessment Selection Program, made it through that. And got to my unit um, in May of 2011, and I deployed to Afghanistan a couple months later. And upon getting there, very shocking for a number of reasons. Of course, me being 19 years old and in a combat zone was terrifying. But also, um, Mm. what attracted me to going into this uh, so-called elite unit, the Rangers, is I thought, you know, I'd be around people that. Maybe viewed war uh, a little bit more critically, or at least had a little bit more of a sophisticated perspective. But you know, my experiences showed me otherwise.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I immediately noticed uh, an exceptionally toxic culture, and one that was almost relishing the idea of killing people and inflicting violence on others, um, and just the the utter dehumanization of of the Afghan people that I noticed. And so. You know, from day one of joining the military, you're taught that, hey, you're defending freedom, you know, truth, justice, all this stuff. You know, you're protecting the Constitution and and so on. And, you know, my time over there, I never once found a single person who was threatening the United States or, or anyone <laughs> within this country. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, which, yeah, you know, spoiler alert. But, yeah, you know, what I found, <laughs> what I found instead were, you know, uh, a group of people who were caught up in, in a situation in many ways uh, out of their control. And and if you have any semblance or an inkling of Afghan history, you start to understand why the Afghan people were wrapped up in this conflict because, you know, before the US invasion there was a civil war, uh, before that there was an invasion by uh, the Soviet Union, but the US has always been playing a hand uh, in this, whether it's arming uh, certain militant groups or or whatnot. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm there for it, it. Probably after like two to three weeks, I figured out. I was like, you know, what we're doing here is, is abominable. Um, mm-hmm. But I was just, you know, I was a private at the time. I was lower enlisted, so mm-hmm. I uh, I had no one to really talk to about it. I mean, the other younger guys, you know, they hated being there because they were the new guy. But there wasn't really um, too much of a a moral or an ethical dimension to a lot of why people hated their life uh, their life over there. Um, and mm-hmm. the majority of my leadership had uh, very little interest in anything other than, you know, doing the proverbial accomplishing the mission. So that was essentially uh, where I was um, as an enlisted man and deploying to Afghanistan. So
0: So it sounds like initially you were at least a little bit critical then of war because you said you were hoping that, you know, this elite squad you're in. Sorry, I don't know any of the terminology, but you Definitely. were hoping that pe- people would be, you know, a little bit more critical. So it sounds like you kind of came into it a little bit critical already. And then just after what you saw. Yeah, you know. um,
1: I think part of that was, um, you know, when I started basic training, there's a lot of dumb shit you put up with. Um, and what you do, though, it's almost like you make excuses for yourself in a sense, because as dumb as basic training was, I was like, okay, I just got to get through this and things will get better. Mm-hmm. And then airborne school was dumber. or I just got to get through this and things will get better, you know, the same thing. And you keep telling yourself that, that by the time you get to your unit, by the time you're uh, among uh, your fellow Rangers, in my case, that things will make sense. Mm-hmm. You'll have a sense of purpose. And so, and I never experienced it. It just, you know, and ways it got worse because uh, the longer I kept telling myself that, the more it became apparent that wasn't the case.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, that's just, that's interesting. Um, Yeah. Very interesting. I think a lot of people probably have followed that your same footsteps.
1: (laughs) Right. And then the key thing is, though, it's like, I think there's a turning point almost for a lot of uh, military personnel where uh, you get to that point and you either choose to... uh, act on those feelings uh in an authentic way and either you know for for some people like me who are a bit more provocative i guess uh you do something Uh or you might just write out your contract and get out and then do things after the fact but um a lot of people i think double down and kind of they kind of put that in the back of their mind and just try to you know get through their day Uh Uh, which Uh is understandable but uh of course that makes you culpable for a lot of uh horrible things you might partake in uh and then down the road Those people end up grappling with those thoughts, and that's why I think a lot of veterans end up in these, you know, obscene and heartbreaking situations we find them in Uh, because of, again, that specific turning point where you either decide to act on some type of – of moral fortitude uh, Mm -hmm. and commitment, or you you double down on uh, the military internalization Mm -hmm.
0: process. Yeah, Maureen and I talk a lot about that just in terms of, you know, capitalism. And I I think that a lot of people do that in every industry, right? They kind of, they realize what they're doing is crap or harmful but then you know just to get up in the morning you kind of have to tell yourself well actually what i'm doing is pretty great and actually i'm supporting all these people actually you know blah 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 but then when it comes to the military and what people have to do there obviously it's so much more intense that yeah as you said it just kind of breaks a lot of people right yeah um so just before we kind of get more into like what you actually did in afghanistan um Mm -hmm. i guess i wanted to ask about you know, what was the justification for even going in the first place? Just kind of remind people, because I think it's it's not really in the mainstream media a lot anymore. People aren't really talking about mm-hmm. it. And I think if people think about Afghanistan, they just think, oh, yeah, 9-11, that happened. And then we had to go into Afghanistan, even though the Saudis were the ones who carried out the attack. But correct me if I'm wrong, like the Taliban had actually said that they would give up bin Laden, And the U.S. was like, nope, we need to come in there. And then recently they even admitted that, you know, there was only like 50 Al-Qaeda guys there, but they still had to go in. So I guess, you know, talk about what why people were being sent there in the first place. And
1: yeah, I I mean, by the time uh, I got there um, in 2011, of course, being uh, a soldier operating at the tactical level, Um, We were just told we're there to, you know, fight the enemies of the United States. Um, But there is no, there hasn't been a strategic uh, purpose for a while. And of course, the war, just morally speaking, is completely reprehensible. But Even within their own framework, it doesn't make any sense. Um, Mm -hmm. I've told this anecdote uh, a a number of times, but when I was a freshman at West Point, I remember asking one of my um, professors, uh, he was a a major uh, field grade officer in the army, and I asked him, he was, it was my intro to psychology course, I asked him, you know, hey, sir, why are we in Afghanistan? What is our strategic purpose? Because I've been wondering that since I was in Afghanistan. <laughs> um, yeah. And he said, he, he shared with us his own story about how, I think he was at, um it was Harvard, and they were doing this roundtable discussion with uh, General Martin Dempsey, who's the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so the highest ranking general in the land. And he said, you know, uh, off the record, uh, to be honest with you, we don't really have uh, a strategic plan uh, or purpose there, <laughs> and so it start. You start to realize that a lot of these things are outside the the control of any um, one or two uh, people. It's a structural, systemic phenomenon, and so on. And of course, we'll get into that later. But for me, though, again, w- when I got over there, um, you know, I asked. I was like, "Who are we even fighting? Who who are these enemies we're going after?" And, and we were told. Um, where I was uh, operating was Coast Province, okay? And that's right on the Pakistani border, eastern Afghanistan. And we were going after the uh, the Haqqani Network, mm-hmm. um, which is an offshoot uh, of the Taliban. And um, ideologically uh, pretty similar, maybe some minor differences. But uh, the Haqqani Network actually, uh, their founder, uh, what's your namesake, comes from uh, Jadallah Hadeen Haqqani, He was funded by the CIA, like in the 80s, like a number of these Mm -hmm. uh, figures were. Of course. And, you know, 20 years later, they're declared a a terrorist organization. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was another thing for me that was kind of (laughs) strange. I was like, wait a minute. So (laughs) why is this guy our enemy now outside of, you know, us deciding, hey, we want to expand U.S. hegemony? Mm -hmm. I never got an answer for that. We were just told the Haqqani were bad guys uh, and we needed to eradicate them. Mm -hmm. But then, again... In the, this never-ending series of contradictions, we had our battalion commander come over, give us this rah, 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 you're so great speech Um, one night. Uh, he came out with us on a mission, and he um he said that this summer will be known as the summer that uh, Al-Qaeda was destroyed, and I was like, well, wait a minute, though. Uh, now, I know the Taliban and Al-Qaeda have some similarities. They've operated together, but but we're not fighting that. Like That's not in within our within our area of operation. But you start to realize that all of these rubes, they have no clue what they're talking about. They just lump all of these different networks uh, together. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't know the first thing about um, Islam. They don't know anything about Islamic jurisprudence, Afghan history, Iraqi, what have you. They, mm-hmm. they don't know a single thing outside of how to be uh, a military officer and to impose violence and force on other human beings. Right. So. <laughs>
0: um, well, I mean, speaking of that, you know, I feel like mainstream media also conflates those two things. And I sure. I don't think that most average people understand the difference between the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. So I guess, um, could you speak a little bit to that and kind of the history and, you know how our relationship with each has changed over time because sure you know, as you said, I think the Taliban used to be our friends and now
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's um you know it, it's uh you don't want to be reductive. Um mm-hmm. but the bottom line up front, uh so the the Taliban were actually like founded as an organization in ninety four mm. uh in the midst of the Afghan Civil War. Whereas Al Qaeda had existed um uh, and since '89, uh, the the main difference is that uh, the Taliban, while well, they they uh, advocate, um, you know, on the macro, they share this idea of Salafist Islam, you know, a foundational interpretation uh, of Islam. They also have uh, the Taliban, what's called uh, Deobandi ideology, which he was uh, an Islamic scholar from South Asia who advocated his own uh, particular interpretation of fundamentalist uh, Islam. And uh, there's also elements of Pashtunwali, which is the Pashtun tribal code that many uh, Pashtuns in Afghanistan uh, abide by, as well as in uh, Pakistan. But it's kind of this this synthesis of Salafis Islam with the Deobandi influence and Pashtunwali. But their main goal has always been uh, the establishment uh, of an Islamic state in Afghanistan. They never really advocated projecting outward uh, mm-hmm. too much. Al-Qaeda, on the other hand, is a little bit different. Uh, They don't really have the Deobandi aspect or um, Pashtun Wali. Uh, And in many cases, the departure between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda is that Al-Qaeda's traditionalist interpretation uh, of Islam does not have those Afghan regional features. Um, And obviously, they're more interested in projecting outward. Mm. However, they have overlapped, they have, you know, operated together in in varying capacities, but there are some key differences uh, there. And they actually, um, in recent years, in in particular the last 10 to 15, there have been a lot of disagreements uh, between the two uh, organizations. Uh, So you know, in, in the simplest way of explaining it and given like, you know, I guess the bottom line in front, That that's how I would um, uh, formulate the key differences between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm.
0: But now, now I, I, again, correct me if I'm wrong, now there aren't actually many Al-Qaeda even in Afghanistan anymore. Right. And then, like, putting this in global perspective, the U.S. is working with Al-Qaeda in Yemen right. and in Syria, right?
1: <laughs> in Syria in <laughs> particular, yeah. Well, because, yeah. like... Um, so, like, the al-Nusra front is an offshoot uh, of al-Qaeda, and, of course, they oppose uh, Assad's regime, and so mm-hmm. the U.S., by virtue of that, and t- in keeping with the U.S. fashion, whoever opposes someone who opposes them, whether they're good or bad, you know, we could have that discussion later, but the U.S. has a tendency of supporting just anyone who opposes someone who is against U.S. Uh, interests. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, al-Qaeda in, in Afghanistan, I mean, even when I was there, it was not really uh the threat that it was made out to be mm-hmm. um and again i myself my unit and we are the proverbial tip of the spear we're going after an offshoot uh, of the taliban mm. but again any mention of al qaeda uh, or the taliban it, you know in the media at large but in, in and especially in the military context is usually just a cipher some islamophobic or orientalist conception of the middle east or south asia mm-hmm. north africa pretty much like islamdom at large mm-hmm. gets conflated with these uh different so-called terrorist networks
0: right yeah exactly um so i wanted to ask you know what were you actually doing like what was your unit doing when you got there um you know what were your missions (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i can play uh so uh so like i said my uh my military occupational specialty my mos as it's called i was an infantryman um, and upon being assigned to my unit, so I was in the uh, I was in 2nd Platoon of Alpha Company of the 1st Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, I was in a weapon squad, uh, which is just another way of calling something a, a machine gun squad. So I was, being the new guy, I was the assistant machine gunner. So my team leader actually carried the big gun and I carried all the extra ammunition, uh, the tripod that he'd mount the gun on, the spare barrel, everything. Um, and our platoon, we uh, conducted direct action uh, missions. So the simplest way of explaining that means to kill or capture uh, people. And so pretty much every night, the typical mission was um, you'd go out, we'd board the uh, CH-47 Chinook helicopters, the big ones with the dual rotors on top. We'd most of the time board those, uh, disembark, uh, raid a village, or just kind of seize or strong point a certain uh, tactical area, uh, but at the end of the day, all we were doing was taking hold of a village, going through the, the different homes, uh, the different rooms, trying to find what was referred to as, you know, site sensitive exploitation, uh, just materials that would uh, give us a clue if they're operating with so-called terrorists, in this case the Haqqani Network, and then um, the actual people were, you know, separated uh, men and women and children, uh, and in some cases, if, you know, those people happen to be armed or try to fight back, they would be killed. Um, when I was over there, it actually wasn't, uh, I guess too hot is the terminology uh, we use. Like we got into a number of kinetic engagements, but actually the majority of our missions were, were rather quiet. Um, but this was important for me because I started to realize it was almost as if we were going out looking for a fight we were trying to almost engender uh a, a violent reaction um from the people uh, at where we were
0: mm-hmm. so
1: that was also very illuminating for me and then you, you see a lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of guys were very sad and, and disappointed that we weren't getting into more firefights which was quite disturbing <laughs> mm-hmm. uh it was very disturbing for me but yeah that essentially was the gist of it and me my role um since i was in the machine gun squad we would typically be a uh, on uh, the perimeter of the village that was being raided and cleared by uh, the uh, the lion squads or like on a rooftop or something. Just we were the uh, what was called the the blocking position which didn't let anyone in or out uh, of the area. Um, but so I'm very fortunate in that regard that I never had to pull the trigger on someone personally. Mm-hmm. But I was still on missions where that happened and I helped facil- uh, facilitate that. So mm-hmm. Again, trying to understand and and, uh, process those experiences, I was like, I did play a part Mm -hmm. uh, in this imperialist violence. And I also learned that it's more uh, complex than just the idea of shooting another person or or calling an airstrike. It's just the presence of of an occupying force is violence Mm -hmm. uh, in and of itself. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about, you know, like, who these people were? Like, I guess they were just average people, you know, but were they farmers? Like, how big were the villages? You were kind of just go- mm-hmm. going up into these farming villages and going into people's houses?
1: Yeah, they were most, I mean, uh, uh, the region we were in, um, in coast, uh, is very rural. Um, uh, a lot of people, uh, I think, when they when they think of Afghanistan, they probably immediately go to, like um, like, kandahar or bagram which is far more um urban Mm -hmm. no but it was very very spread out so uh like from a bird's eye view you would see like a village and uh you know a lot of land or empty space and then village so kind of just pockets of villages here and there and that was essentially what we were dealing with uh yeah the majority of them you know without i didn't do a full like you know human geographic analysis but from what i observed just kind of some degree of subsistence farmers, people just trying to make ends meet. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing uh, really beyond that. Um, we're also outside of the um, uh, the uh, the opium crescent, which is more uh, mm. South Afghanistan. We're on the Eastern side. I mean, there's still some of it, but not nearly as prevalent uh, in the South of the country.
0: Mm-hmm. And you said you didn't find anyone who was threatening or that, you
1: know? <laughs> no, it, it just, and again, like, I'm sure, like, Again, you don't want to fetishize people and say, oh, yeah. everyone's good. No, but I mean, it was cl- so clear, um, if you're paying attention or have something of a critical eye, that any of the people who did engage with us in, in a kinetic fashion, as we like to say, were were put into that or forced into that because of the U.S.'s actions uh, mm-hmm. in the region and who they have funded and supported or uh, have uh, tried to uh, impose themselves on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, even one of our most prominent missions, which all the guys were talking about even post-deployment, where it was a dual platoon mission, we called in an an A-10 airstrike on, like, one to two guys that were running away. Now, this is an aircraft that's supposed to be used uh, for uh, anti-armor missions. You know, it it shoots um, uh, 30-millimeter depleted uranium shells, and every guy... I I never forget the sound this machine made, uh, and every guy thought it was the coolest thing ever, and I'm just like... Wait. So this is this big terrorist camp we said we we're going to be raiding. I remember I'm sitting there on a ridge, like looking, mm-hmm. like at a couple guys just being strafed by this monstrosity. Uh, wow. It is it, just, yeah. Again, it's like they, everyone willingly participated in this collective delusion when we were over there. Right,
0: right. Yeah. yeah I mean, it sounds like a lot of money for whoever made that weapon right well exactly yeah exactly <laughs> and that's you know years later that's the thoughts I started to connect yeah yeah so basically you started you you identified with the people in these villages I suppose more than Yeah. Like well a-
1: again because I hated like my chain of command I hated the people who were appointed over me and made my life a living hell they treated me and other you know younger soldiers like shit mm-hmm. um and I was like the, the, the contempt with which they viewed the afghan people
0: mm-hmm.
1: is the same contempt with which i felt like they viewed me um and so that's when i started you know i i didn't really have a fully coherent socialist or anti-imperialist conception yet mm-hmm. um but that's when i started to say hey maybe uh, i could change things and that's you know the West Point thing started to come up again, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, mm-hmm. I was thinking well, maybe I can apply there,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, become an officer, and prevent some of these horrible things from happening.
0: For so. for people who aren't American or like in the know, can you just kind of explain what West Point is and the significance of it?
1: You yeah, um, you guys uh, in Canada, I think it's RMC. It's like that's the equivalent the the Royal Military College of Canada. Mm. It's um.
0: I don't think I don't think, think it, it, it quite has the same like it doesn't
1: have okay. cachet
0: or whatever. You know. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: yeah. So West Point is the United States Military Academy. Um, it's where uh, if you want to be a military officer. Uh, Plus have this prestigious education and be part of this lineage you go to. There are other ways to get commissioned as an officer. You could do ROTC at a normal college, which is the Reserve Officers Training Corps. Or you could do um, uh, OCS, Officer Candidate School, if you're already a soldier or coming in with a collegiate degree. But West Point is attractive because if you get accepted and appointed to go to the academy, it's a fully funded uh, education uh, from the United States government on the condition that you serve uh, five years active duty uh, as an army officer. Mm-hmm. Um, And so it's like you get a, a liberal arts education, but there's also a military training aspect to it. And, of course, a physical uh, aspect to it uh, as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand it to be kind of, you know, prestigious or just yeah. kind of really wrapped up in American identity.
1: It, very much. I mean, yeah. So historically speaking, it was founded in 1802. Originally, that was the only place you would go if you wanted to be commissioned uh, as an officer in the U.S. Army. So, like, some of the legendary generals we always talk about uh, that are p- part of, you know, the national mythology, uh, you know, like Eisenhower, MacArthur and all of them, they were all, you know, West Point graduates. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Including actually a lot of, uh, well, actually, all of the, the majority of the Confederate officers during the Civil War were also uh, West Point graduates robert e Lee is a former superintendent of west point and is still venerated there which was another uh, moment for me that was quite confusing and, and led me down my <laughs> radicalization yeah.
0: yeah i think i read that in you have a piece in truth dig i was reading yeah, about that. yeah right mm-hmm. yeah so you jo- you went into west point after this because you hated your director so you were like well if i'm a director then i can change things from the inside
1: yeah the, yeah, the classic uh, liberal <laughs> I, idea. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So, yeah, I guess, could you elaborate, I guess, on your experience at West Point and <laughs> I guess yeah. the infamous way that you exited it? <laughs> right.
1: Well, um, so I enter West Point in July of 2012. Um, I was pretty excited because, like I said, my enlisted time was not what I thought it would be. I was pretty disenfranchised by that point. Mm-hmm. And, again, this idealistic conception I had of things. Uh, I thought that, now West Point, this will be the place mm-hmm. where I'll find these these warrior poets, where I'll find the, the scholars who are willing to engage critically uh, with the war. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: But upon arriving there, uh, I saw it was very... Very much the same mentality I encountered in the enlisted ranks and even in the range regiment. Maybe some slight differences here and there. There was like a veneer of uh, intellectualism uh, to West Point because it is also uh, a collegiate experience. But generally speaking, it was the same chauvinism, Mm -hmm. hyper-patriotism that I observed when I was enlisted. Um, Just in in this case, I guess... uh, I, f- I had something uh, more of an escape because academia was what i really threw myself into there mm-hmm. uh, and studying history um i ended up getting really uh uh into middle eastern history uh, my freshman year and from there that kind of became my focus region mm-hmm. uh, as a history major but yeah generally uh, generally speaking uh i didn't notice a large degree of difference, uh, between my experiences as an enlisted man and as a cadet. Uh-huh. And so because of that, in addition to, uh, studying history more critically, um, especially that of the Middle East and, uh, uh, Western imperialism in that region, I also, uh, decided to consult, uh, the forbidden texts, you know, Marx, uh, Lenin, uh-huh. uh, especially, uh, Antonio Gramsci uh-huh. was, uh, very much influential uh-huh. on, uh, conceiving of the world and naming my own experiences and understanding why I bought into these ideas. What was the the, the cultural hegemony uh-huh. of the country at large, but in places like West Point and in places like the Ranger Regiment. Uh-huh. And so from there, I started to kind of realize that, hey, uh, it's not an accident uh, that we're in Afghanistan or that we're still in Iraq. Uh, it's not an accident that, you know, Obama ran uh, on a ticket Advocating for the end of the Iraq War, but expanding U.S. influence uh, in the region. Um, Mm -hmm. All of this is part uh, of a larger system, and I was like, "Well, what is the system we live under?" You know, and I was like, "Oh, okay, capitalism." Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you kind of start to realize that, hey, again, it's not an accident that a number of these generals who retire end up as board members of some of these defense contractors or weapons manufacturers. So. Mm You realize that none of the wars are designed to be winnable they're designed to be endless because they're exceptionally profitable uh for those companies that have uh, a stake in manufacturing the arms but also they also uh feed into this national mythology and allow the u.s to, to maintain its its dominance uh and its hegemony
0: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely did you find that anyone else was coming to similar conclusions or no <laughs> i did actually oh, and that yeah. see
1: that was one of the key differences from my enlisted time too is um actually uh one of my best friends uh whose name i won't mention on here because of uh well you know the military has its methods of repressing people but mm-hmm. uh, he was actually former enlisted as well um and he wasn't an infantryman like me but he had deployed to afghanistan and kind of came to similar conclusions So we uh alongside each other kind of radicalized but Ah, uh, beyond him, i had I had a group of friends. Um, we were kind of like, uh, I guess, like the local hellraisers. We do stupid shit, like raise pirate flags around the campus and stuff. but um, we we what started off as kind of more just rebellion of like hating our lives and being cadets. We started to approach things more philosophically and politically. Um, I guess we kind of maybe fashion ourselves as some type of like young Hegelian like type collective at mm-hmm. West Point, which is really nerdy. But we, through <laughs> these like, you know, uh, critical encounters and conversations, we all started to develop a more coherent um, worldview uh, and, and uh, an actual uh, politics that was critical of existing institutions. And fortunately, there was also a number of sympathetic professors who I gravitated towards who opened my eyes uh, mm. to these different political and philosophical conceptions as well. So through that, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of us. I don't want to overemphasize it and say that, you know, there's everyone. But mm-hmm. there was a uh, small enclaves and pockets of resistance uh, there at West Point. And that was a big deal for me because up until that time, I started to think that the military maybe was hopeless. Mm. But being in a place such as that, And finding those pockets, uh, of resistance, uh, was just life-changing, uh, in many ways. And, in in a number of ways informed my decision to take, uh, the steps I did when I decided to speak out publicly and resist.
0: Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That makes me feel actually really hopeful. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, hope is hidden
1: in contradictions. Uh, so I, I got, I can't emphasize enough that, um, you know, in the most unlikely of places, you can always find someone who's willing to resist and speak out. Mm-hmm. And and from my direct experience, I can confirm that. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned kind of, you know, presidential rhetoric with Obama. Obama mm-hmm. also said that we would be out of — I say we, I just mean Western powers <laughs> — yeah. um, we would be out of Afghanistan by 2014, and then he did this big, like, surge, actually. Yeah. 2014, therefore, is a pivotal year. America's combat mission will be over by the end of this year. We will no longer patrol Afghan cities or towns, mountains or valleys. That is a task for the Afghan people. And then Trump also campaigned on rhetoric that being in Afghanistan was absolutely ridiculous. Afghanistan is a total and complete disaster. What are we doing? Money should be spent in our country. We should rebuild our country. Let's get with it. Get out of Afghanistan. And then he dropped the Moab, the mother of all bombs, the most powerful weapon in American arsenal on Afghanistan. So I guess... Can you talk about about why we're still there, and you know why no one is talking about this?
1: Yeah, I mean, historically speaking, it's it's eerily reminiscent of uh, the uh, the Anglo Afghan Wars uh, in the nineteenth century and, and the British Empire not realizing that they had lost. Um, it's eerily reminiscent of the French uh, in Indochina, later Vietnam, as well as the U.S. Uh, in Vietnam, but of course. With its own contemporary uh, aspects to it, but I mean, I think the main reasons are both uh, the the systemic aspect and that uh, the profit motive mm-hmm. is this death drive of sorts, and because war, especially the the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, are so profitable that to end that war full stop would result in a lot of these uh, uh, arms manufacturers and defense contractors losing a lot of money and given who has uh, the most influence uh, within the political structure of the United States, uh, I think that's the main reason uh, why we're still there politically uh, and systemically. But beyond that, um, imperial hubris, I think, is also a very real thing and is reflected in a material sense, mm-hmm. uh, even though it comes from uh, the, the individual proclivities of generals and you know, right-wing politicians and so on. So I, I think that lethal combination of the profit motive uh, and imperial hubris, is just almost off the scale
0: mm-hmm.
1: of, uh, in, in terms of, uh, understanding why any rational human being, uh, would still be there. But it's like you can't engage with these people on a rational level because even if it might be against their own political interest, uh, war is so ingrained in us culturally mm-hmm. that just the mere thought, of pulling out of afghanistan or iraq is is to concede defeat Mm -hmm. i mean i i remember growing up how silly i thought it was and i was a kid when everyone was like talking about france being these cowards and so on because they decided not to support uh the invasion uh of iraq uh and you see that uh to this day and then this mentality this ideology trickles down and and, uh infects uh the ranks of uh, the military too because even people who admit, you know, hey, this is bullshit, why are we here? You know, a lot of them will be like, well, you know, we still have we still have a rule to play there. We still, you know, have a promise to the Afghan people. They'll try to, you know, term it in mm-hmm. that way too. It's like, no, 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 you're the main reason why the Afghan people are, are suffering right now. Mm-hmm. And until we can grapple with that, I think we're, we're still going to be there. Again, mm-hmm. we being, you know, Western uh, imperial powers. But I think finally... Um, There is the initial stages of a renewed anti-war movement, and I think uh, a number of people getting involved in socialist politics at varying stripes is indicative of that. So I am hopeful we'll be out of there, uh, maybe not in the immediate future uh, but in the near future, but until we have a reckoning with that imperial hubris which infects the ranks of the military but also the masses of populations in countries such as the United States and other Western powers, uh, until we have that, that reckoning, uh it doesn't look too promising but i myself think that that is coming soon uh i can't say when of course but i i am hopeful given uh the the amount of um energy we're finding in the streets and varying uh leftist spaces currently
0: mm-hmm. well i'm hopeful also with projects like yours that are coming out and sharing all of this and mobilizing people towards this right but yeah i mean talk about cultural hegemony i mean we talk a lot about like poor republicans who vote against their own interests right and so it's kind of you know a lot of people join the army because it's uh you know it's economical right so if you don't have any good options then the army's great and then you know it's just poor people being used by elites to go fight other poor people and yet this hegemony persists right and right and i'll say
1: um the one thing uh about the military is I have never been, uh, you know, I'm in graduate school right now. I've never been in a space that was more uh, diverse than when I was in the army. And that's something we also have to grapple with is how uh, not only, you know, like uh, poor people, but a lot of poor people of color uh, join the military because it's a way out Mm -hmm. uh, of the hellish existence that's part of the United States. I've known a number of people who join for the promise of citizenship Mm. uh, with military service. So... Within that, though, I think is another uh, exceptionally important field of struggle and an organizing uh, opportunity. And I think that that will be a major factor uh, in the days to come and mm-hmm. trying to turn, you know, the ranks against, you know, the powers that be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, people joining to get their citizenship just makes me sick. Right. It's just, yeah. you know, within this horrible system, the most marginalized are just forced into these horrible situations. And then. Yeah yeah, um, but in terms of the political economy, I mean, like who's most benefiting from this? Uh, I mean, even just thinking about the United States' government, like it's become such a shell, right? it's, it's there's not it's like empty and hollow, but it just funds all mm-hmm. of these different contractors to do <laughs> to do what it needs to do, right. I guess right. like who's most benefiting from this? and like what would happen to the American the American government if we were to shut this stuff down?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the people that most benefit from it uh, or, or the, uh, the class would be, you know, many of the interest groups who are tied directly to um, not only, you know, right now it's Donald Trump, but really the, the, the right wingers that pushed Obama to the right on a lot of issues too. There's, um, there's certain, I guess, capitalists in this country who are beyond the reach almost of our political process, because we really don't have politics in America, we have the spectacle of the Republicans and the Democrats, and then mm-hmm. they give you the illusion of choice. But really, the uh, the existing capitalist class, those who are, you know, I, I mentioned Raytheon, Boeing, mm-hmm. but you know, the the JP Morgans, and all these others on Wall Street, they play a direct role uh, in the war industry, too. Mm-hmm. Um, C. Wright Mills, termed them the power elites 50, 60 years ago. Uh, And and in many ways, I think that's an instructive uh, category. I mean, because yes, it's the capitalist class, but you have to understand that there's different elements of it. You know, Mm -hmm. you have the actual capitalists themselves, but you also have high ranking generals who then go on to become a part of that or something similar. And then you also have the ones executing policy uh, within our existing um, political uh, institution. So uh, at the end of the day. Uh, the to give a, the the political economy of the situation and analysis of the political economy, I would say that that fraction of a 0.01 percent that owns the wealth, they are the ones who benefit uh, the most um, from this uh, war industry in this country, in particular, Afghanistan uh, and Iraq.
0: I mm-hmm. mean, you mentioned, you know, the right wingers, but also the Democrats uh, are Right, it must be benefiting because they all supported the defense budget yeah. and everything too, right? So, <laughs> of course. Well, I mean,
1: they're also the right wingers. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, here. that's true. So, that's true. Yeah. That's true.
0: Um, but yeah, I guess it just kind of blows my mind just thinking about just how linked the American government is with all of these defense contractors, and just wondering, you know, because they they pay for or they will be paying for a lot of stuff if, you know, Blackwater, (laughs) uh, is allowed to go into Afghanistan. And, uh, Oh yeah.
1: Well, I mean, uh, Eric Prince, uh, you know, the, the CEO or the leader of Blackwater, I think they go by some other Orwellian name now, like Academy or something, but Blackwater, uh, they actually, you know, Eric Prince was trying to push Trump in the direction of privatizing, uh, the conflict. I was like, oh, okay, so we're doing like a British East India Company thing now. But mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm, there's a mm-hmm. lot of historical precedent uh, to these actions. But yeah, either way, uh, it's horrifying. Um, mm-hmm. I, I also wanted to mention that w- what is so uh, abominable about it, though, for me is that, like you mentioned, the Democrats, it's almost like assumed that you had to be fully supportive of the war industry in this country in order to be taken seriously politically. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why uh, a number of, you know, political candidates who, who advocate for something of a social democrat line or maybe something of a socialist political line, usually on the question of anti-imperialism, they're a little bit weak because in order to even have a seat at the table in this country, mm-hmm. you need to be fully supportive of the military, fully supportive of the troops. Otherwise, you're you're against America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it, it is quite maddening uh, in that regard.
0: Well, I'm trying to think about this, and this is why I'm kind of sticking on this political economy, because I haven't really, you know, thought this through entirely. But I feel like at this point in global late stage capitalism, like what else does America have besides their defense industry and their arms industry? Like right. China is pretty much overtaking them in every other way economically. And they're kind yeah. of like just this fading, you know, they're just kind of yeah, they're totally fading as a, as a, you know, important economic players. So what they, what they have is arms and like the defense industry yeah. and stuff, right? Yeah, so- I, well, I think
1: it's, um, the most recent, uh, study says, I think the U S has like its military budget is greater than the next nine to 10 countries combined. Mm-hmm. So and it shows, I mean, and again, this isn't like This isn't even like a socialist solution. This is just like a kind of a milquetoad social democrat conception. But if you take even like 20 to 30% of that defense budget and reallocated it towards healthcare and education, Mm -hmm. I mean, it would materially change the lives of 99% of this country.
0: Absolutely. But I think like because of decades of neoliberal policies and trade deals that outsource all of the production elsewhere... Um, if America were to take that money and, but like, America doesn't have anything to offer anymore. Do you know what I mean? They don't. So, yeah. so it's like they've created this situation where now they've outsourced everything. Nobody has jobs. Everyone has these like flexible little retail jobs. And if they were, like, if they were to get rid of this defense budget, then it's like they would crumble almost. You know what I mean? It's the like them <laughs>
1: collapsing on itself. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, they've almost, um, it's like a catch 22 almost. They, yeah. They've, Structured it in such a way that if they would relinquish that, the whole system itself. Well, it's it's like um they've intertwined the uh, militarism with the actual like political and economic structures right. of this country.
0: And I yeah. mean, and and there's definitely a way to like reform that. There's like there's definitely yeah. a way to like you know recenter that and um to develop you know actual American um, industry again. But they're not they're not doing that, and they're not willing to do that, right? So it's just doing whatever they can, going into whatever country they can, like, killing whoever they can just to maintain this, but I don't, I I think you're right, like, I don't, I don't see this happen, or I don't see them being able to do this on the world stage for that much longer.
1: No, Uh, (laughs) but that's what I mean, not, not to do, like, the, the classic, like, teleological, um, because, I mean, nothing is written, Um, you know, although I'm I'm a Marxist, I think that we shouldn't assume Mm -hmm. uh, political or historical events are going to follow a particular linear path, but, if you're paying attention there are certain trends you could point out and um, it looks it looks like we're heading to some degree of a of a crisis of mm-hmm. sorts and what's going to spring out of that I don't know um mm-hmm. my fear is that out of this you know pending economic crisis we're going to have a more sophisticated Trump uh, arise and that mm-hmm. could be quite dangerous um, a lot of people talk about fascism in the US and I think there's elements of it uh, but Trump for me is more of a parody fascist or kind of like tapping into um fascist energies that will kind of be released once we get to the next uh crisis point Mm -hmm. um but yeah i I mean at the end of the day like you said i unfortunately believe we might be uh beyond uh, the point of reform it's like until you have a complete Mm -hmm, restructuring mm -hmm. of the economic and political uh aspects of this country unless you have a from the bottom up restructuring i don't know if there's anything you really can do outside of this military machine just perpetuating itself into oblivion uh, like we're looking at right now
0: yeah absolutely but I think I think that more and more people are waking up like I think you're right about that and then also you know the closer that we get to this precipice of disaster (laughs) I mean the more the more evident it becomes that this doesn't work and that you know we're gonna have to start building something up from the ground up right so yeah for sure so I don't know if you know much about this, but I, how do you think that opium is involved um, in terms of the political economy of it? Because, you know, the CIA says that, you know, we need to whatever eradicate this, but it's actually opium has been expanded under their watch. And I yeah. mean, there's other historical precedents of when the, the CIA was actually like working with drug lords, et cetera. So I don't know if you know yeah. much about that, but.
1: Uh, I mean, um, the biggest thing I can say is much like how we just described how militarism is intertwined with the United States political economy. Because of US influence in their region, they've almost forced the hands of Afghans to make opium production an integral part of the Afghan, uh, Afghanistan uh, economy. So mm. I mean, that's the biggest issue with it. Um, that's for me unsettling because it's so important now for the economic livelihood uh, of the country And it's directly because of uh, imperial machinations that this, you know, drug trade has become such an important uh, economic mechanism uh, for the Afghan
0: people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, but also, I mean, for the like pharmaceutical companies and everything and the states and stuff, right? So I don't know. There's a lot of things going on. So recently Trump said that he might actually negotiate a peace settlement with the Taliban. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and what the implications of that. R yeah this mike
1: and i kind of talked about it uh, a couple episodes ago on eyes left uh again the short story is that the generals have been boasting of victory you know in, in varying shades for like years now they'll always say you know we've achieved tactical operational dominance in this region and usually all that means is they've killed a lot of people but really haven't had any lasting impact outside of that mm-hmm. um and in many ways uh the Taliban have become sympathetic in the eyes of many Afghans, because at this point, uh, the Afghan national government has been propped up by the United States. It doesn't have any legitimacy or authority. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the Afghan people just want peace. They just don't want to have to deal with endless war. I mean, again, Mm -hmm. before the U S invasion, there was a brutal civil war before that there was other outside force. I mean, so it's nonstop conflict and, uh, the Taliban, of course, again not to uh, gloss over some of the horrible atrocities they have partaken in, but they are local Afghans uh, who live there and are trying to institute some form of a stable government. Uh, it might not be perfect, mm-hmm. but it's it's not the uh, it's not the United States and it's not the United States puppet government. Uh, in terms of Trump uh, negotiating a peace settlement. Uh, it's interesting to me because again, you know, Trump's quite erratic. We don't know where uh things might go. <laughs> I mean, look at the the up and downs with uh you know the DPRK, uh, Iran, uh-huh. Syria, you you name it. But uh, I think it's it's fascinating to me because there's no uh there's no more glaring example of the abject defeat of the United States in Afghanistan than the fact that right now this you know right wing lunatic of a president is actually entertaining the prospect of a peace settlement uh, with uh, the very force that, you know, George W. Bush and and his ilk, you know, proclaimed to be, uh, you know, defeating and, and removing from the region uh, almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you would hope that a peace settlement gets reached. But again, I, you know, it's it's too early to, to say uh, what's going to happen with that. But mm-hmm. uh, if anything, again, for me, what's instructive in that, uh, that paradigm is, to show how the U.S. has absolutely failed uh, in any of its objectives, mm. but continues to try and, and push them nonetheless.
0: Yeah, but also that it, I mean it's kind of pointless, right? Because if you're just going to make a peace deal, like you could have made a peace deal 16 years ago or something. Yeah. <laughs> like Why did you? Right. Why have you yeah, been there course. for 17 years? <laughs> right. right.
1: But they made a lot of money in that uh, that decade plus time. That's, you know, that's true. The key. Yeah.
0: That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um all right well thank you for sharing all of that read the afghan war so i wanted to just talk a bit um about west point and like when you decided to actually speak up there and how that was for you dealing with the fallout
1: sure so uh so i graduated from west point in may of 2016 um i almost got kicked out my senior year for being you know a communist and sharing articles on my Facebook wall that some of my instructors didn't like. That's a funny story. But uh, I graduated in May of 2016, and I commissioned as a second lieutenant. Um, I was an infantry officer, went down to Fort Benning, uh, did my thing there again. Um, but, you know, by that time, you know, I I, I did have a fully conceived uh, notion of the world. I, I had a, a political philosophy that I, you know, ascribed to. And I knew that materially my relation to power was that of the oppressor. I was serving the interests of the ruling class. However, um, I was kind of stuck because, you know, if I was to just leave, um, I would owe West Point, uh, you know, something in the order of six figures um, because that's how they, you know, they get you. They they say you have to serve for five years active duty, otherwise, you you owe us money. Wow. Um, So I just thought. Despite being, uh, radicalized by that time and mean a socialist, I thought maybe within my own sphere of influence, my own like kind of area of operations, I might be able to kind of prevent some bad things from happening while knowing that structurally the whole thing is completely fucked. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this was in the midst of the 2016 election cycle in the United States. And, mm. you know, it, it started to settle in with me that even though, of course, you know, Obama carried on the imperial policies of Bush, who carried them on Clinton, Bush, Reagan, even though they all were part of the same imperialistic uh, political tradition, mm-hmm. Trump getting elected in November 2016 for me was almost like a heightening of the contradictions Uh, in a sense because no one saw it coming. Everyone, we always thought, oh, that's, that, that would never would happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, being a military officer, I was like, okay, well, this guy is my commander in chief <laughs> now. I can say how much he sucks, how stupid he is, oh, he's... but at the end of the day guess what Mm -hmm. that was literally my boss Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so if I was to have any shred of authenticity uh, I had to get out of the army somehow so that's when I started to kind of figure out what I could do Mm -hmm. Um, and you know I was very much supportive of Colin Kaepernick and protesting uh, white supremacy uh, in the United States Um, and I was inspired um uh, the writer, uh, Rory Fanning, who's also a veteran activist, who also was in the Ranger regiment, like I was, he, um, he posted this, uh, picture of him, uh, sitting during the Anthem at a Cubs game, uh, with a sign that said veterans for Kaepernick. And he's someone I always had a correspondence with. And I really admired that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, after getting to my new, um, my new unit, the 10th Mountain Division, uh, in, uh, summer of 2017, um, which is in Fort Drum, New York, upstate New York, just outside of Syracuse. I, uh, you know, I was just going through the motions there, still trying to figure out what I could do to resist. And the whole National Anthem NFL debate started up again in the fall of 2017. And, you know, as we know, Colin Kaepernick got blacklisted. He lost his entire professional career for merely speaking out. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, here's someone who who could have just kept quiet and ha- ha- would have had it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he took a a, a very very big risk, um, and made a difference. And I thought, well, maybe I could do my small part. So, uh, in the midst of all this, I just tweeted out a picture of myself, um, from graduation day, (laughs) which I had kind of kept to myself mostly. Um, I think it might've been on like my Facebook or Instagram, but I didn't have too big of an online presence at the time. So no one really saw it outside of like friends and family, but I took a picture of myself at graduation with communism will win inscribed (laughs) in my hat. Uh, and I had used the hashtag, uh, veteran for Kaepernick and it went viral. Uh-huh. And, um, I was in, I was actually, uh, helping conduct a, a live fire exercise, uh, in the field at the time. And out, you know, the next morning I got called in by my chain of command <laughs> informed I was under investigation. Uh-huh. They pretty much like locked me in a range tower and told me not to go anywhere. And wow. from there, uh, you know, I waited for the investigation to come back. Eventually I was issued what's called, um, uh, general officer's memorandum of reprimand or a go more, uh, telling me what I did it was unprofessional, this and that it'd be filed in my permanent, uh, file. And then from there I got informed, uh, like of, you know, this is going to be, you know, a career killer, essentially this and that. And essentially long story short, the clock was ticking on me. Um, mm-hmm. At that point, I just wanted to get out. Um, I said what I wanted to say. Um, they kind of had me under like a gag order of sorts. If I said anything more, it'd be used against me. And so my attorney told me, you know, just kind of, you know, keep quiet for now. We'll try to figure this out. And so I said, well, can I just resign my commission outright uh, and get out? And so I tried to submit my resignation in February of this year mm-hmm. uh, on the condition that I received no less than a general discharge. That's not even the best you could get. I didn't say no less than an honor. I said no less than a general. I waited for a couple months, they kicked it back and said, no way, um, you could either submit an unconditional resignation, which means we'll give you whatever discharge we deem is appropriate, or you could submit yourself to what's called a board of inquiry, mm. which is essentially this it's like a show trial where a panel of like three high ranking officers are, are the jury and I essentially wouldn't have had a chance. So mm-hmm. this time, I just needed to get out. I had I had something of a plan with what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew I could do way more on the outside than inside. And so I submitted my unconditional resignation because I really didn't give a fuck if, you know, the Empire (laughs) considered me honorable or not at that point. So I submitted it. I got accepted and I was out, like I said, in June of this year.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you you had communism will win under like written on the inside of your hat, which you had like flipped up and done a little like fist pump and then you also yeah. had Che Guevara under your shirt right under your uniform
1: <laughs> I did uh it's interesting a lot of people don't realize that was actually me um kind of riffing on a stupid tradition at West Point because on graduation day mm-hmm. w- many different like events we have uh, at West Point a lot of the cadets will wear shirts underneath uh their uh dress uniform and some you know some of them are particularly heinous like I can't say how many times I saw, like, a Reagan Bush 84 shirt. And I always thought that was dumb as fuck, but because that's part of, like, you know, the the hegemonic, you know, culture. Uh, well, it, no one ever, you know, blinked an eye. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, fuck this. <laughs> I was like, So I wore the shirt. And then the note on the inside of the hat, um, this is, for me, another Gramscian. This is, like, what I consider the war of position, like, fighting the <laughs> battle on the molecular level. Um, a lot of cadets, what they'll do... Is they'll write a note in there talking about how great this experience was and this and that, and they'll leave money in it. And because what happens is at graduation we throw our hats in the air, and then the children of the families will come and pick up the hat. And so they're, they're supposed to read a note and be like, "Oh, this is so great. This will inspire me to be a soldier, and I get money." So it's like it's like the most beautiful like microcosm of like you know the imperialist war machine. I was like, so "Fuck amazing. that!" I was like, "I yeah, I just love the idea of, like some kid picking up the hat and showing like his blue blood dad like." I mean, morning,
0: that but, is so funny yeah, so. oh my god yeah, yeah i died laughing because i hadn't actually seen these, these photos and then so i i'd heard you on eyes laughter or whatever and so i googled you yeah. And everything that came up was, like, these hor- oh, yeah. horrible right-wing sites that were just, oh, like, great. the commie cadet, like, guess what's yeah. coming to him and whatever. And I was, like, what? And so I looked at the photos and I was, like, these are so badass. Like, these are yeah. so badass. Yeah, I got a lot of
1: death threats from, like, <laughs> Trump Gundam 1488 and people like that. All these crazy yeah. right-wing, like. Online people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That was all I was seeing, but I was laughing so hard. But then I, I kind of wondered because you're standing in the photos, um, like, you know, there's like people behind you that are just kind of milling around or like looking at the camera. And I'm like, does anybody know that you're flashing this or does anybody know that you're flashing oh, yeah. your, like, Che Guevara shirt? Like, what were, what were people's reactions?
1: Of course. Well, I mean, so again, <laughs> a lot of what the right wing pedals is complete nonsense. Um, but there are more sympathetic uh, people in the ranks uh, than one might think, as I've said earlier. So yeah, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people were completely on board with it and thought if they didn't completely agree, just thought it was fun or, you know, interesting that I was poking fun at this stupid tradition that, you know, mm-hmm. West Point graduates always do. But but yeah, I mean, I, um, I did not really conceal my political views while I was at West Point, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of friends who were sympathetic to them. But there's also another important uh, historical aspect um, to what I did is that a month earlier, um, 16 of uh, of my uh, classmates, um, the 16 black women in my class, they posed for a photo. Mm. And that kind of went viral too. And it was them standing in front of one of the famous buildings and all of them were in the dress uniforms like I was. And they all took a pit, uh, picture with their fists raised in solidarity with each other. Mm-hmm. And when that dropped, oh, my God, the, the amount of just um, just pearl clutching by right wingers and, of course, just the vile, racist and mi- misogynistic uh, things said by, you know, people in the West Point community currently or graduate. I mean, it was horrific. And uh, all of those all of my classmates, those uh, 16 black women were forced into like that, like spend this weekend talking with other high-ranking officers and writing, like, these apologetic essays. It was really, really completely, uh, dehumanizing and debilitating, and so Mm -hmm. I also took that picture out of, like, my own sense of, like, solidarity and admiration, uh, with them. It was, like, the least I could do, and, Mm -hmm. you know... When everything blew up for me, um some of the people who were the most supportive were a, a few of those uh women who uh mm-hmm. partook in that picture. So That's
0: awesome. So were you forced to like you didn't have to pay anything back to West Point, did you or?
1: No well, uh, so um the the main gist of that is uh, so if I would have just left the academy um, like the end of my senior or midway through my senior year, whatever, I would have really wouldn't have had an argument. But because, like I said, I almost got kicked out my uh, my senior year. Oh yeah. Um, they knew I was a communist. They added on writing. <laughs> I had to go through like my entire spring break essentially got taken away from me, um, mm-hmm. and I was forced to remain back. They they issued me a hundred uh, almost a hundred hours of punishment tours. I mean, they did everything to try to get me to quit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did my time. Uh, They said, fine, you you made it through. And they gave me, you know, the rubber stamp of approval. So I was talking this over with my attorney. um, And he said, uh, I guess the legal terminology was, I detrimentally relied on their assurances because they said, That my communist beliefs Mm. were commensurate with military service. And there isn't any regulation that says you can't be a communist in the army anymore. I think there was maybe 30 years ago or so, but that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, But because they essentially forced me uh, to leave, Mm. uh, I haven't gotten any notification of recoupment. Um, And I don't Mm -hmm. think I will. Even if I did, um, I have contact with people who are kind of experts on the matter to help me out. But I... I At this point, I don't think they want to fight. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, but if they do, by all means, please. But I I don't think they're really interested uh, in that right now. When it comes to uh, West Point, but the Army at large, whenever there's any controversy, they just like things to quietly dissipate. The Army does not like to have any internal strife broadcasted. (laughs) You know, that's, again, we talked about this. They like to be separated from the rest of you know the public consciousness
0: oh totally they don't don't want a bunch of headlines with you know west point and communism in the same line (laughs) right exactly exactly
1: (laughs) well because then again uh, a lot of a lot of the cadets there are very frustrated so maybe Mm -hmm. they see hey what is this communism stuff they start reading and that's how it started like i said it's at the molecular level that a lot of this um organizing takes place Mm -hmm.
0: well that's amazing i think like it's so brave of you honestly to do all that because i find you know it's hard for people to even come out and be real about their politics in everyday life when you're dealing with sure. just like social democrats and stuff you don't want to be alienated you don't want to like be whatever so yeah I just think it's awesome that you came out in such a well, thank you. oppressive institution so I yeah I appreciate that Um, so I guess uh, that's all my questions I just wanted to know if you had anything to add or if you want to talk a bit about like what you're doing now with the DSA or
1: I think that's a good wrap up we're yeah. about what an hour and ten yeah you no know, I think that's a good <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I, I mean, self promotion's okay. I don't like to talk about myself too much.
0: So, <laughs> so, but. Okay. Well, you, you don't want to say anything about DSA veterans or whatever?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, I yeah, I am a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. I work uh, quite often with the Veterans Working Group, um, which is, I think, again, another great organization if you're a veteran or you're active duty and you're feeling alienated and need some people to talk to, of course, Reach out to myself and Mike on Eyes Left, but the Veterans Working Group would be happy to have you. Um, and we're all trying to to find a way out of this hellish existence. Um, so again, that's another organizing opportunity, and I'd love uh, to see more veterans, both active duty and veteran. Uh, love to see more veterans, both active duty and those who are out right now, to join up with the the Veterans Working Group. Um, and I mean, when I was going through my situation for nearly, you know, the year it was, um, as horrifying and alienating as it was the fact that I was a member of a socialist organization. And I had something like the veterans working group, uh, to lean on. I mean, I, it made all the difference. I can't emphasize that enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on yeah, the show. Um, I will plug great. eyes left obviously in the show notes along with how you can contact Spencer. So yeah, thanks again for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. So, just before we go here, I want to shout out the patrons. Thank you so much for everyone's continued support. So, Matthew Cotton, Paul Morin, thank you so much, Uh, Liam, John Victoria, and Kevin Fackler. I feel like I already shouted out Kevin Fackler, but it came up again. So thank you, Kevin, <laughs> so much. Um, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com, or you can toss us a one-time donation via PayPal, also on our website or share these episodes with your friends and family and potentially rate and review us on itunes or any app that you listen to us on it all goes a really long way in increasing our reach and helping us to continue to do the show so with that uh i guess i will see you in two weeks thanks for listening everyone bye